Hello there and welcome to Byzantium and the Crusades. My name is Nick Holmes and this is a podcast series that looks at the Crusades from the Byzantine angle. In previous episodes, we've heard about how the collapse of Byzantium led to the First Crusade. And we've heard how the First Crusade has achieved a major victory over the Seljuk Turks at the Battle of Doryleon. The way was now open for them to advance across Anatolia towards their next objective, the heavily fortified city of Antioch, previously the second city of Byzantium after Constantinople. As before, I'll read extracts from my book called The Byzantine World War, which was published last year in 2019 and is available at Amazon and most retailers. So let's go. Hope you enjoy it. As the Crusaders marched south from Doryleon, they entered a wasteland. The Turks retreated before them, poisoning wells and burning trees and crops. It was August, and incredibly hot, which made their progress even more difficult. But they had one advantage. Nowhere would the Turks stand and fight, still in awe of the Crusaders' victory at Doryleon. The Turks fled the ruined Byzantine towns and the Crusaders reached Iconium in Cappadocia and then marched on to Heraclea. There they found themselves confronted by the towering Taurus Mountains, which they would need to cross or travel around to reach the plains of Syria. They stopped and asked the Byzantine general Tatisius, who had accompanied them from Nicaea, which route to take. He advised that there were two, one straight through dangerously narrow mountain passes called the Cilician Gates and the other heading northwards through the less dangerous Antitaurus Mountains before turning south to Syria. The Crusader leaders decided to split the army with a smaller force heading south while the bulk of the troops took the easier northern route. By doing this, they would emerge in a pincer movement on the great city of Antioch, which Tatisius said was essential to capture before moving south to Jerusalem. The crusaders who crossed the Taurus Mountains found it hard going, and just as had happened to Romanus's army returning along the same route from his first campaign in 1068, some plunged to their deaths along the narrow mountain passes. The larger army to the north bypassed the mountains and had an easier time. Finally, the two armies were reunited in front of the great city of Antioch. Their first reaction was one of despair. Quote, we found the city of Antioch very extensive, fortified with incredible strength and almost impregnable, Stephen Count of Blois wrote to his wife. Antioch had previously been the third largest city of the Roman Empire and the second largest in the Byzantine Empire. It had huge fortifications that stretched for five miles with some 400 towers as well as an imposing citadel. Having fallen to the Turks in 1085, it was now garrisoned by some 5,000 troops under the command of Yagi Sian, who owed allegiance to the Seljuk emir Ridwan of Aleppo. 
Deciding that the fortifications were too strong for a direct assault, the Crusaders settled down to a siege, hoping that the Turks would surrender when their provisions and food ran out. But as the autumn of 1097 progressed, they found that they were the ones running out of food. Initially, the countryside had provided them with ample sustenance, helped by Byzantine supplies from Cyprus, which the general Tatisius had organised. But the sheer size of the Crusader army meant that it ate the countryside bare. By the end of 1097, the Crusaders were starting to starve. According to one of the main chroniclers, quote, the poorer people ate even the hides of animals and the seeds of grain found in manure, end quote. But worse was to come. News arrived that the Seljuk emir of Damascus, Dukak, was advancing with a large army of Turks and Arabs to lift the siege. Luckily for the Crusaders, although Dukak's army was formidable, it was only the army of a single Seljuk emirate, that of Damascus. The Crusaders' greatest advantage by far was that the Seljuk Empire had splintered into a host of largely independent emirates. This had occurred after Malik Shah's death, Malik Shah was Alp Arslan's successor, when his son Bekyaruk, who reigned from 1092 to 1105, although nominally the Sultan of Baghdad, with authority over both Iran and Iraq, while his brother Sanjar ruled the eastern half of the empire extending to modern India, failed to impose his authority over the Syrian emirs in Damascus, Aleppo and Mosul, who ruled independently. Therefore, there was no concerted effort by the Seljuk Empire to field a major army against the Crusaders, such as Alp Arslan had done at Mansikert against the Byzantines. Indeed, the Seljuk emirs of Syria and Iraq were often in conflict with each other, giving the Crusaders the opportunity to pick them off one by one. There is no doubt that this was the single most important reason for the success of the First Crusade. The Crusaders had another major advantage, however, which was the military genius of Bohemond of Taranto. Bohemond had learnt that the best way of fighting the Turks was to force them into close-quarter combat, where the heavy armour of the knights could be used most effectively. He had used this tactic to great effect at Dorileon, and he used it again against Dukak's army. When out on a foraging expedition to find food, he and Robert of Flanders spotted the advancing Turkish army. Instead of retreating, Bohemond led a blistering charge against the Turks. While there was a confused battle with heavy casualties on both sides, Dukak decided to retreat and returned back to Damascus. But after this success, within a few days, Another Seljuk army appeared, this time led by the emir of Aleppo called Ridwan. A substantial force of crusaders left Antioch to confront the Turks with Bohemond, Robert of Flanders and Stephen of Blois. Once again, it was Bohemond who took the leading role in the battle. 
waiting for the Turkish cavalry to engage fully with the Crusaders, he held his Norman knights back until the Turks had formed a dense mass of horses, unable to use their bows or to turn around and ride off. He then charged with his heavy cavalry and swept through the Turkish ranks. One of Bohemond's men has left a vivid description of the force and bravery of his attack. Quote, so Bohemond, protected on all sides by the sign of the cross, charged the Turkish forces like a lion which has been starving for three or four days, which comes roaring out of its cave, thirsting for the blood of cattle. End quote. Beaumont's charge routed the Turkish army, with the Crusaders pursuing them as far as Harim, capturing precious horses and much-needed supplies. But although these two victories lifted the Crusaders' morale and brought in some additional provisions, there was still no sign that Antioch was any closer to surrender, and the army was still critically short of food. Indeed, the defenders were surviving better than the besieging army, partly due to food being smuggled in, and also because the population, unlike that of the Crusader army, had no need to keep thousands of horses fed and watered. When news arrived that a third and even larger Turkish army was on its way, this time led by Kerboga, the Emir of Mosul, and under the direct instructions of the Seljuk Sultan Bekiruk himself, something had to be done to end the siege quickly. Again, it was Bohemond who found a solution. And there was a reason for this. It became clear that Bohemond wanted to take Antioch for himself. Although in Constantinople it had been agreed with Alexius that the former cities within the Byzantine Empire would be returned to Byzantium, Bohemond proposed that since Alexius had done nothing to help the Crusades since the fall of Nicaea, whoever of the Crusaders were able to breach the walls of Antioch and bring this, this exhausting siege to an end should be given the city as his own to rule. With Keboga bearing down on Antioch, Raymond of Toulouse, the richest and most powerful of the Crusaders, together with the other Crusader leaders, reluctantly agreed to Bohemond's demands, but on the condition that Antioch would ultimately be returned to Byzantium. Bohemond made this offer because he was concealing a trump card. This was the contact he had made with an enemy commander responsible for a stretch of the city walls. This man was called Firuz and was probably Armenian, as he spoke Greek, as did Bohemond and other Sicilian Normans, making communication much easier. He agreed to let the Crusaders scale his section of the walls and then open one of the main gates. The plan worked, and Bohemond was able to open the gate of St. George and let Robert of Flanders and Godfrey of Bouillon lead their men in. Thereafter, the city was quickly taken, apart from the citadel, which remained in Turkish hands. Inevitably, the local Muslim inhabitants were slaughtered, although since the city had been in Byzantine hands only 13 years earlier, there were still many Christians in the city, most of whom seemed to have been spared.
On the 3rd of June, 1098, eight months after the siege had started, Antioch was finally in Crusader hands. But the very next day, Keboga arrived with his army. Keboga's army was probably about the same size as Kilij Arslan's had been at the Battle of Dorileon, probably around twenty to 30,000 strong, and mainly consisting of Turkmen supplemented with some Arabs. But by this time, the Crusader army had shrunk to only some 20,000 knights and foot soldiers and was therefore outnumbered. Kaboga immediately made contact with the Turkish garrison in the citadel, who were still holding out and which were situated within the city walls and therefore accessible to his army. He launched an attack into the city from the citadel itself, but it was driven back after fierce fighting. Keboga then decided to lay siege to the city and starve it into submission. The besiegers had become the besieged. But now their food supplies were critically low and the crusaders knew they couldn't last long. It was at this lowest point that the crusaders proved most resourceful. When morale was sinking rapidly and men were fleeing the city at night in despair, Raymond of Toulouse and Bishop Adhemar of Le Puy told the crusaders that a miracle had happened. A peasant from Provence, called Peter Bartholomew, had told them of a dream in which Christ himself had revealed to him the whereabouts of the Roman lance that had been used to pierce his side at the crucifixion. Miraculously, the holy lance was discovered in the place indicated in in his dream that was under the floor of the church of St. Peter in Antioch. Although this was, in fact, a ruse designed to boost flagging morale and suspected as such by many of the Crusaders, it worked. Brought out and displayed to the Crusaders, the lance gave them hope for one more battle. And just as importantly, it was agreed that the commander for the coming battle would be Beaumont. He would not disappoint them. On the 28th of June, Bohemond led the majority of the Crusader army out of the city in a surprise attack. Since almost all the horses had died or been eaten, Bohemond could no longer launch the fierce cavalry charge that had brought him victory before. Instead, displaying his creative and versatile military talent, he marshalled the Crusaders into disciplined infantry ranks and marched them out of the city gates and across the bridge over the Orontes River that flowed in front of the city. The Turks hadn't expected such a move. Indeed, Kerboga was playing chess and didn't believe that the Crusaders would dream of attacking. The Turkish camp, full of women as well as the possessions of the nomadic Turkmen, was sighted in a particularly vulnerable position close to the city. The Crusaders' rapid advance threw the Turks into a panic. Without a proper battle plan, the Turkmen leapt on their horses and spurred them towards the Crusaders, showering them with arrows. But the Crusaders, with the holy lance carried in their midst as a standard, marched steadily forward in disciplined ranks led by Beaumont. 
Row upon row of crusaders, with the knights fighting as infantry, pushed the Turks back. And as one group of Turks retreated, they crashed into the group behind them. The result was chaos. It was made even worse by the fact that Kerboga's army was made up of several independent units, some of which had little loyalty to him, and they fled. The crusaders tramped forward with grim determination, slaughtering whoever was in their way. They captured the Turkish camp, where one crusader grimly recounted, quote, when their women were found in the tents, the Franks did nothing evil to them, except pierce their bellies with their lances, end quote. Keboga fled back to Mosul. The citadel at Antioch immediately surrendered to the crusaders. Bohemond had led the crusaders to another astonishing victory. Now there was no significant enemy force for hundreds of miles. The path to Jerusalem lay open. But there was one problem, and this time it lay with Bohemond himself. For after defeating Kaboga, it became clear that Bohemond, the architect of the Crusaders' success, had no wish to continue to Jerusalem. Instead, he wanted to remain at Antioch. The truth was that Bohemond was an ambitious opportunist, and the real reason for his joining the crusade had been to build a kingdom for himself in Syria, just as his father, Robert Guiscard, had done in southern Italy. Antioch was to be his capital city. To the other crusaders, this was tantamount to treachery. However, for the time being, all of the crusaders were simply exhausted by the protracted siege of Antioch. On the 3rd of July, 1098, the Council of the Crusader Leaders decided to postpone the advance south to Jerusalem until November to give their troops time to recuperate as well as to avoid the searing heat of the Syrian summer. However, this delay only allowed the infighting to escalate. In particular, relations came to a head between Beaumont and Raymond of Toulouse. Raymond of Toulouse was in his mid-fifties, elderly by medieval standards, but still fiercely ambitious and the wealthiest and most powerful of the Crusaders. He saw himself as the natural leader of the Crusade, although so far it had survived without a leader through the surprisingly effective cooperation of the various feudal lords. But now Bohemond's claim that he should be granted Antioch set alight a fierce dispute that looked as if it would break the crusade apart. And that ends this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, I'd be hugely grateful if you left a rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere. Thank you so much. And in the next episode, we'll hear how the crusade nearly fell apart after the siege of Antioch.